before we begin, let me invite all of you to the picnic in the common after our service. Whether you plan on staying for the whole afternoon or not, please come and enjoy the meal with us. And if you're really hearty, um, stay with us for the evening service. The message will be different. In fact, Pat and Tammy McLeod will be sharing um, about their lives with Zach. <laughs> yes, Zach. So I encourage you to spend this day with us together. And I'd also draw your attention in your bulletin to the section on prayer. And notice that for the next four months, on Friday evenings, we'll be having a service of prayer, a public time to gather together and cry out to the Lord. Would you please join us? And also there's an opportunity there to sign up for a particular day in this season, to, to focus in prayer for this church and especially for the search process for the next senior minister. So I encourage you to do that as well. And now listen as I read from Luke chapter 11, verse 1. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples to pray. For some time now, I have been struck by this disciple's request. I mean, we have no record in Scripture of the disciples asking Jesus, Lord, teach us how to teach. Although Jesus was certainly a master teacher. And we have no record of them asking, Lord, teach us how to lead. Though Jesus obviously was mentoring them in the art of spiritual leadership. We don't even have a record of them asking, show us how to heal. Though he did give his disciples the power to work miracles. Now, I don't know, maybe they did make these other requests. But what is recorded in our Bible is this one. Lord, teach us to pray. Why? I mean, could it be that, that at this early stage in following Jesus, even then the disciples realized that what they needed, perhaps more than anything else, was to learn how to pray? To, to learn to talk with God, to commune with Him, to enter into a, into a life-giving, conversational relationship with Him? And could it be that when they saw Jesus pray, when they heard his words and saw the expressions on his face, when they sensed the reality and the vitality of his relationship with God, they realized, I don't have this. I want this. I need this. You see, there was something about the relationship between Jesus and his Father in heaven that was incredibly compelling. How about you? How about me? Do we know how to pray? Is there something about our communion with the living God that causes other people to ask us, would you, would you teach me how to pray? Something salty enough to, to make them thirsty for the living God? 
and for intimacy with Him like they see in our lives? And do you happen to know where most of the great saints of God through most of the history of God's people have gone to learn to pray? I mean, do you know where the people of Israel went? Do you know where the Benedictine monks went? Do you know where Augustine and Anselm and Aquinas went? Where, where Luther and Calvin and Wesley went? Because they went to the same place. I mean, they went to the Lord's prayer, yes, and to the prayers of the prophets and the apostles. But, but above all else, they went to the Psalms. You know, this, this happens to be the, the oldest book in my personal library. I mean, it's not that old. It's, it was published in 1733. But, but it's, a, it's a Roman Catholic breviary. And it's written in Latin, so you imagine it doesn't get a lot of use. But this one, this one Cindy and I use. It's a prayer book based upon the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. And both of these books contain a translation of the Psalms at their heart. Because every morning, every evening, in both of these books, that the Catholic and the Protestant church learn to pray by praying the Psalms. In fact, the person who uses the full Anglican book of common prayer to guide his or her morning devotions will pray the entire book of Psalms every month. 12 times a year. And the Anglican and the Catholic church has done this for hundreds of years. In fact, back when we were all Catholics, back in the 8th century, a church council decreed that only those priests who had memorized the entire book of Psalms could be considered to become a bishop. And it's not only Anglicans and Catholics who pray the Psalms. I mean, I went to college with a young man who traced his Christian heritage through the Puritans back to Calvin. And in his covenant Presbyterian church, the only songs they would sing in worship were the Psalms. And they sang them a cappella. I mean, the way Calvin's congregation sang them, he told me, 500 years earlier. Now, I thought that was rather strange. But I did notice that my friend David knew how to pray. And of course, it's not only traditional liturgical churches who turn to the Psalms. I mean, as a little boy growing up in a very, very low, low church, you know, the kind that didn't have robes, it didn't have creeds, we didn't even celebrate Advent or Lent. I mean, I was told that, that it was Billy Graham's devotional habit to read five Psalms a day, and then I was told to go and do likewise. And I used to carry to grade school in, in my back pocket one of those New Testaments that the Gideons handed out. Maybe you remember them. Maybe I'm just dating myself. I don't know. But, but if you remember them, you, you remember them that they don't, didn't only contain the New Testament. They also contained the Psalms. Because the Gideons knew what we know that the Psalms are perhaps the most read, the most cherished, the most familiar of all the books of the Bible. And so when I was thinking about what I would preach during my last season with you, 
I decided to follow the lead of my boyhood hero, Billy Graham. And follow the lead of, uh, of Luther and Calvin and Wesley and the lead of Cranmer and Anselm and St. Benedict, to name just a few. I decided to turn to the Psalms. And the main reason is that I think we need it. Perhaps more than we need anything else in the busyness and the barrenness and the prayerlessness of our lives. See, we need to spend a season in the prayer book of the people of God. We need to let their, the thoughts and the feelings, the, the, the poetry and the songs of God's people in prayer seep down deep into our souls. We need to study them and pray them until we learn how to pray. And next week, we begin with Psalm 1, where we learn, among other things, that prayer begins, oddly enough, with listening. With listening to and meditating upon the Word of God. Because all true prayer is response. It is response to the God who has revealed Himself in His Word and who continues to reveal Himself. But, But this week, All I can offer you is an introduction to the Psalms. And I would like to do it in the form of a few preliminary observations. And here's the first one. The Psalms teach us how to pray because the Psalms are written in the language of the heart, the language of love. I mean, one of my theological heroes is an 11th century monk by the name of Anselm of Canterbury. And he's, he's a hero in part because of his brilliant intellect. I mean, Anselm, for example, created an argument for the existence of God. It's called the ontological argument that, that is still studied in philosophy classes to this day, some 1,000 years later. I mean, Immanuel Kant considered it significant enough to engage it in his own work. But, but it's not Anselm's argument that made the deepest impact on me. It's how he wrote that argument. You see, Anselm wrote his argument for the existence of God. In fact, his whole theological treatise on the existence of God in the form of a prayer, a prayer which begins, speak now, my heart, speak now to God saying, I seek thy face. Thy face, O Lord, will I seek. And come now, O Lord, my God. Teach my heart where and how it may seek thee. Where and how it may find thee. And the prayer goes on through the whole treatise. Now, does that sound like a theological treatise to you? I mean, I, I, I could hardly believe it when I first read it. And I've never forgotten it. And later I learned that Anselm learned this way of thinking and writing about and to God from Augustine. From Augustine's confessions, for example, one of the most profound and moving meditations on the nature of God that has ever been written. But it too is written as a prayer. And I dare say that both of these learned men learn to write of God and and speak of God 
at the foot of David the psalmist. In fact, Anselm's words, which I quoted to you, are a, a quote from Psalm 27. You may have noticed. But, but there's this tendency, when we talk about God, to talk about him in the third person. You know, he did this. He, he said that. He, he's like this, not that. And there's nothing intrinsically wrong with talking about God in the third person. I mean, the Bible does it all the time, and the book of Psalms does it. But, but it would be rather strange, don't you think? If I were sitting in a room with my wife, Cindy, and, and I began to say, Cindy is a beautiful woman. I, I mean, a caring heart. She's wise. I, I find her amazing. Cindy's listening to this, and she kind of waves her hands and says, uh, are, are you talking about me? Well, well, do you think it might be just a little bit more meaningful if you looked at me and, and maybe said those things to me? See, the language of relationship is first and second person. It's the language of I and thou. I love you. I need you. I find you amazing. And that, that's the heart language of the Psalms. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs after you, O oh God. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My, my body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Have mercy on me, O oh God. According to your unfailing love, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. See, this is the language of a person who loves the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind. And he can hardly talk about God without beginning to talk to God. And as he talks to God, he inevitably breaks forth in song. Because the heart that loves sings. Words written, words just taken into the mind are never enough. That there must be a tone of voice, that there must be tears and laughter and sighing, that there must be poetry and song. So my first observation is that the Psalms teach us to pray by giving us the language of love. And by the way, if that makes some of you uncomfortable, especially some of you men, get over it. I mean, I don't think you could find a more manly man than King David. I mean, David was a great warrior. He was a giant slayer. He was a man who could, bow, who could bend a bow of bronze. He was the kind of man's man that just drew other men to his side. They were called his mighty men, and they just wanted to be with him. They wanted to go to battle with him. And this man's man, was the singer of Israel. 
He, he was a man after God's own heart because he, was, he had a heart that was filled with love and a voice that was filled with song. And real men and women learn to pray with the Psalms in the language of love. And real men sing. Here's my second observation about the Psalms. If you live for any time at all in the Psalms, you will soon find that the people who wrote them said the darndest of things. I mean, we're not at all surprised to find in this ancient book songs of highest praise or, or words of heartfelt thanksgiving. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout out loud to the rock of our salvation. Come, let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The, the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he has made it, and his hands have formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. I mean, that's the kind of poetry and praise what we expect to find in the Psalms. But, but that's not all we find in the Psalms, is it? Break the arm of the wicked, David cries out. Rain fiery coals and burning sulfur on their head. I mean, break the teeth in their mouth, O God. Tear out, O, o Lord, the fangs of these lions. Let, let them vanish like water that flows away like a slug melting as it moves along, but like a stillborn child who never sees the light of day. May they be blotted out of the book of life. I mean, it's poetry, but wow. And perhaps the most terrible of all, Psalm 137. O daughter of Babylon doomed for destruction, blessed is he who repays you for what you have done to us who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Is that in this book? See, when you read the Psalms, you find not only expressions of love and songs of praise, you hear cries of anger and painful lament and heart-rending complaint. You find guilt and anguish and confusion. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me right now? So far from the words of my groaning. How long, O oh Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I have unceasing grief in my heart and wrestle with my thoughts? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look at me and answer me, oh my God. Or try this one from Psalm 44. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep. You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from their sale. My disgrace is before me all day long, and my face is covered with shame. And all this happened to us, though we had not forgotten you or been false to your covenant. 
Our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path. But you crushed us. For your sake, we face death all day long. We're like sheep being led to the slaughter. Wake up, O Lord. Why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. I mean, what do we do with psalms like these? Well, imagine for a moment that, that you're Diedrich Bonhoeffer or Corey Tenbu or one of hundreds of people living at the end of World War II in a German concentration camp. And you have seen firsthand the wanton murder of men, women, and children for no other reason than the fact that they are Jews, the chosen people of God. I mean, could you, if you were Bonhoeffer, pray prayers like these? How about if you were a slave living in the American South? How about if you were a Christian living in a place where Christians are persecuted, sometimes to death? I mean, could you pray prayers of confusion, prayers of agony, prayers that cry out for justice? In fact, prayers that sometimes go over the edge, even beyond what is right. I mean, I do not think the barbarity of Psalm 137 is is pleasing to God. I do not believe that God actually blesses the, the vengeful murder of innocence. But, but even in these psalms, and maybe especially in these psalms, we can learn how to pray. For, for where else do we go? With our rage and our confusion and our cries for help in time of trouble, if we do not go to God, I mean, the only shoulders in the universe that are broad enough to handle all of our human emotions and all of our human confusion and the agony of our very human souls are the broad shoulders of Almighty God and the rugged, ragged, sometimes unresolved honesty of this ancient book of prayers is a testimony to the faith of those who said these prayers. See, these men and women believed in God enough to tell him how they truly felt. That they believed in God enough to bring the deepest troubles of their souls before him and to hang on to him even when they didn't understand what was happening to them or why. And Jesus himself took one of their most desperate cries upon his own lips. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Once again, teaching us how to pray. See, the Psalms give us a language of the heart where everything that needs to be said can be said to God. A language where every joy, every grief, every confusion, and every awestruck wonder can be experienced and expressed in the context of a very real and life-giving relationship with our Father in heaven. Hallowed be his name. The Psalms give us a language of love. The Psalms give us a language in which everything that needs to be said can be said. 
And here's my third and final observation this morning in the way of introduction. The Psalms teach us to pray in the end of the day by leading us into the worship of God. I mean, you may not have noticed it, but, but there is a shape to the Psalms. It's not the shape of a story or an essay or a theological argument. It's not the shape of a letter from Paul or a narrative from Moses or a gospel from John. But, but it does have a beginning and an end and a, a principle of organization. You see, there are five sections in the book of Psalms, and these sections are labeled books in our translation. And each of the books ends in a similar way, with an editorial invitation to the people of God to praise. Book, end, book one ends with Psalm 41 and these words. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Book two ends with Psalm 72 in these words. Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. And then book three ends after Psalm 89. Praise be to the Lord forever. Amen and amen. And then book four, Psalm 106. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let the people say amen. Praise the Lord, or hallelujah in Hebrew. And finally, book five, which ends with the final psalm, the 150th psalm. Praise the Lord, or hallelujah. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and guitar. Praise him with tambourine and dancing. Praise him with strings and flute. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Do you think the inspired authors were obvious enough? I mean, are you noticing the pattern? I mean, above all else, the book of Psalms is a hymn book of praise. It's a collection of 150 prayers put to music. I wish we had the music. But, but put to music to, to give the people of God a heart language to commune with God through all the pain and confusion and the glorious goodness of this life. But, but in the end of the day, these songs have one ultimate purpose. In the end of the day, they move in one definite final direction. They move us to worship God. And they're written with the conviction that if we can face the ups and downs, the twistings and the turnings of life on earth with God, we will learn to love him and praise him, to bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. See, in 1977, at the height of the Cold War, 
a brilliant young mathematician and chess player named Anatoly Sharansky was arrested by the KGB. And he spent 13 years in the Soviet gulag, that, that frozen Russian prison that was made infamous by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And in that prison, his most prized possession was his book of Psalms. He so cherished that book that when the, the guards took it away from him, he, he lay in the snow refusing to move until they returned it to him because he would have rather died than have been deprived of that book. And morning by morning, evening by evening, Anatoly poured over those 150 psalms. He, he read them, he meditated, he memorized, he, he prayed them. Well, what did these psalms give me, he wrote after being released? Well, gradually as I read, my feelings of deep loss and unspeakable sorrow were changed into bright hope. See, Anatoly let the Psalms do their great work in him. They taught him to worship. They taught him to love and praise the living God through all the ups and the downs, the twists and the turns of this often tragic life. See, the Psalms give us a language of the heart, a language of love. The Psalms give us a language in which everything that needs to be said can be said to God. And the Psalms give us a language where everything finally leads to the worship of God. And so the Psalms teach us how to pray not just by studying these words, though. But we have to sing them and recite them and meditate on them until they seep down into the very marrow of our souls. And then over time, through these psalms, we will learn how to practice the presence of God. And practicing the presence of God is what prayer is all about, to see thee more clearly, to, to follow thee more nearly, to love thee more dearly, day by day. So may I invite you to spend the next few months with me and with each other in these Psalms. And not just on Sunday, but, but through the week. And especially if there are college freshmen here. I, I remember my first year in college. I, I can't believe I remember that long ago. But I devoted myself to the book of Psalms. And it was one of the best things I did. For in these songs, you will find soulful intimacy, rugged authenticity, wild poetry and deep faith. And if you spend a lifetime in these Psalms, then like the Puritans, you will pray until you learn how to pray. So let's learn how to pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, O oh, great 
Three in one and one in three. The, the mystery beyond our understanding, and yet the one in whom we live and move and have our being. Would you please teach us to pray? Cause prayer to, to be our very, the very breath of our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.